0: Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics that is now coming to you live and in person on December 14th. Stick around to hear more. On the docket for today, Freeland's mini budget at your service to save us from inflation, or like maybe not. And also the notwithstanding clause. How did it come to be and why is it increasingly being invoked? Joining me this week, welcome back to The Backbench. Murad Hamadi, policy and tech reporter from The Logic. It's nice to meet you. Hey,
1: it's nice to be here.
0: Emily in Paris, welcome back from your trip (laughs) to France. We've missed you here on The Backbench. Thank you. It's good to be back here, Emily in Montreal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Emily in Montreal. Our Ottawa insider, Nick taylor Vasi, reporter for Politico. Hello.
2: Thanks for having me. Nice to be here.
0: Let's get into it.
1: I have the honour to table, in
3: both official languages, the Fall Economic Statement 2022.
1: A plan that supports Canadians and uh, builds an economy that works for everyone.
3: What we're announcing today, what we've been doing throughout, is to strike a balance between necessary compassion and support for Canadians
4: and fiscal responsibility.
3: Conservatives will stand for the common people. Their paychecks, their homes, their savings, and we will vote against this inflationary For Canadians who were told again and again that the Prime Minister was going to have their backs, in this fall economic statement, he's actually turned their backs.
0: The Liberal government recently announced their spending plans in their fall economic statement. The government's finances have seen a recent boost thanks to high oil prices and money acquired through personal and corporate taxes. And Freeland's latest mini-budget reflected this with lots of new spending, even as the economy may be on the brink of a recession. Let's take a look at what's in this budget. We see some new support for workers first off, so the Canada workers' benefit is being expanded from an annual payment that low-income Canadians would receive after filing taxes to a program of quarterly payments. The fall mini-budget also includes an investment in green energy jobs, echoing items in the recently released U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Students and recent graduates will be given a boost as the government is eliminating interest on federal student loans and investing in summer jobs for students. There's also a new dental benefit that we've talked about before on the podcast and a billion dollars in spending on Hurricane Fiona relief. Now, Conservatives are saying that this budget is going to accelerate inflation and that government spending is how we got into the inflation crisis to begin with, while the NDP and the Green Party are wanting to see more immediate and direct actions to protect the most vulnerable Canadians, which would involve, guess what, more spending. Jagmeet Singh has said that even though he thinks the budget falls short in some ways, his caucus will nonetheless support the Liberals in passing it. The fall economic statement also represents the first time that the Liberals have forecast a balanced budget since coming into power in 2015. So maybe the budget is finally going to balance itself? Let's dive into this mini-budget and why we should care about it. So first things first, Murad, the government's spending in the name of addressing inflation and also avoiding a recession, which are two goals that don't always 100% align. So are there any hints or indications as to whether this mini-budget is going to successfully achieve either of those aims?
1: Well, Justin Trudeau doesn't control the economy, no government does, much as they would like to pretend otherwise when it's going good, when it's going bad, it's someone else's fault, it's the macroeconomy's fault, it's always someone else's fault when things are bad. But, you know, it is a fine balance to walk. Freeland on the day of the fall economic statement was talking about not wanting to make the Bank of Canada's job harder. The bank is at raising interest rates uh, over time by quite large margins compared to what we've seen in the recent past. There is this balance to be walked where you want to help people who are suffering from inflation but not by putting more money into the economy, cause demand to rise in a way that causes prices to continue to rise. There is no perfect level. There is no known balancing point. A recession is seeming increasingly inevitable. and. The business cycle creates recessions inevitably you're putting off a recession until the next point where you can't avoid it not necessarily forestalling one forever (laughs) this is one of those situations where unfortunately the answer is time will tell
0: a lot of the kind of action that's being taken in response to the current economic conditions at least in the us has been very business focused when ultimately like at least from my perspective it seems like the people that are the most in need of direct assistance at this point, are low-income Canadians that are finding that their basic expenses are becoming increasingly difficult to afford, not that it was easy before. So, Emily, how well do you think this budget is actually addressing the needs of the most vulnerable as it's kind of claiming to do?
4: So there's a couple of things that this budget does that was... You know, applauded by people who really care about the most vulnerable in Canada. One is making all the student loans permanently interest-free uh, in Canada. Those had been uh, suspended, the interest payment, but now that's going to be interest-free forever. And there is also some more uh, tax credit as well for the people who are lower income. However, I will say that when it comes to combating inflation, the first thing that always is said when the government wants to help out is that it's going to essentially fuel inflation. And that's, you know, obviously what Pierre Poirier keeps on saying. The reality of that is that really it depends who you spend on and, and how much you spend on and what's the exact policy that you put in place. You don't go around and fight an inflation crisis or a recession by hammering economics one-on-one high school level sentences about how the economy works. It's a little bit more complex than that. And for example, when it comes to inflation right now, there's two really sectors that have been having a very really strong impact. Three actually on Canadian finances, one is oil and gas, second is groceries. And third is housing. And when it comes to groceries, we've seen that there's been lots of companies who've actually increased their share of profit in terms of that industry in the last year. So there's questions as to what are the causes of inflation? Is it that you know food is actually more expensive because of war in Ukraine or transportation? Or is it also that there is that and then large companies in Canada take advantage of that to just also increase their share on profit on top of it also? Those are questions that have been asked and raised in the last months. And there were some, some propositions put in place, I think, by the NDP to make sure that we also look at, you know, basically sectors in the Canadian economy that are set up basically as oligarchy, where you have very few players who can even sometimes go around the competition and just essentially fix prices and collude with one another. And th- those are the allegations that are made. And so there could have been some stuff done on that, but that was not in the fall economic statement. And I think that's very much worth mentioning as well, that the whole issue of, you know, why we have inflation rather than Looking at, oh, inflation is there and so we need to make sure that we don't contribute to it. That question wasn't raised at all in a way that Kristen Friedman presented her fall economic budget. And I think a lot of us who still have questions on that were left also with a government that didn't do much on that front.
0: Yeah, I think that there are probably... Reasons why the government didn't perhaps address the corporate side of inflation as much as they're addressing making sure that people have money in their pocket to buy groceries, et cetera, right? To kind of cut directly into corporate profiteering is something that a government that, in many ways, is very connected to large Canadian corporations, is not going to be excited to do.
4: Really, Matteo, you think?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's shocking. This is also a great moment to, I guess, mention that the new seasons of, of uh, Commons, another show on Candleland, is coming out right now, focusing on on this sort of oligarchical corporate structure that Emily, you just mentioned. I think the first episode was talking a bit about groceries, if memory serves. I also appreciated the note on students. I think that that's one of the measures, actually, in this mini-budget that you can't really claim like is going to worsen inflation because it's not like giving people money directly. So I'm glad, I Emily, mean, that you brought up this question of what has the conservative response been to the budget, the notion that we're giving people more money and it's just going to make inflation worse. I want to play like a brief game with everyone, and we're going to guess what are buzzwords that Pierre Poilievre used in his response to this mini budget? Does anyone want to hazard a guess, string together a couple of words that we think were used to describe it from the conservative camp?
4: Was just inflation mentioned?
0: I think that that was called unparliamentary language and they're not allowed to say it in parliament anymore from what I remember. Any other thoughts on what sorts of words and phrases?
1: I mean, I feel like I've cheated because one of my colleagues spotted it in the release, but he's calling it the NDP liberal costly coalition.
0: That's not cheating. That's doing your research. Yes, the costly coalition did get mentioned.
2: Did he say triple, triple, triple the carbon tax?
0: Point for Nick. We got triple, triple, triple. (laughs) We're doing really well here. So we've got the costly coalition. We've got no new taxes. We've got no new spending unless matched by equal savings. Uh, Inflationary scheme was a phrase that was used. Inflationary spending as well. And of course, common people.
3: When we learned that the costly coalition would be introducing this economic update today, we had two demands no new taxes on workers and seniors, and no new spending unless matched by equal savings. Today, this inflationary scheme triples, triples, triples the tax on home heat, gas, and groceries, and adds $20 billion of inflationary spending that will drive up the cost of living, and so, Conservatives will stand for the common people, their paychecks, their homes, their savings, and we will vote against this inflationary scheme.
0: You know, of course, Conservatives are going to be critical of Liberal spending. That's kind of what they're in Parliament to do. That's what they're there for. But what I'm not really clear on is what actions and alternatives they have to propose otherwise, because ultimately, like, people do need to buy groceries. People do need to spend money on rent. There are certain things that are going to need to be purchased no matter what. It doesn't really seem palatable for the Conservatives to say that they just, like, wouldn't spend money or they'd impose austerity measures or or these sorts of things. What does it look like they're actually proposing as an alternative to the sorts of measures that are being brought forward in this mini budget?
1: So I would say the conservatives are essentially proposing to cut the federal portion of taxes or reduce them on things that ultimately feed into the cost of living. So obviously the carbon price slash tax, depending on which uh, side of the aisle you're on, is the big one. They are proposing some specific reductions or cuts or eliminations of that measure in specific sectors or areas that would in turn they argue reduce costs by reducing the triple 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 in fact is you know one of these measures by eliminating those step- ups uh, the idea is that that eventually flows into people's wallets now I do want to point out here that is not dissimilar from what the NDP is proposing and not to stand up here and sort of defend the idea of monopoly but The specific measure that's been proposed is a windfall or profit tax. That's what the NDP is proposing on big grocery companies. And you have to ask, how does that eventually filter down to price reductions? Because that's taxing, basically trying to capture some of the the inflationary effect on the far end. So you're saying, you know, companies are making profits, the profits are higher than they were before, take the simplest version of a windfall tax, We compare what your profits were before this period that we care about to what they are currently, and we tax you on the difference. That money then has to somehow go back into the pockets of consumers, right? Otherwise, all that's happening is government revenue is increasing. So you would be punishing, in theory, the grocers, but you won't actually be doing anything about inflation because the prices are already set. And the prices are set by a set of things that involve the input costs. So in theory, maybe you flow that money back to people. That's how the inflationary effect is addressed. But there's still a mechanism that has to happen, and all of that takes time. The question is, what can you do to reduce inflation right now? And interest rate hikes are really the strongest tool in the toolkit to do that. So I think the question of what measures can you take immediately, you know, arguably, if the government thought that putting money specifically into the pockets of demographic groups of people, so whether that's low-income people or other groups that are particularly put out or have a particularly difficult time coping with inflation? If they felt that that was the measure that could address inflation, they have the fiscal room to do that. In the sense that you know they they didn't spend all of the extra revenue that they have gotten this year. So they found at the time of the fall economic statement, thirty seven point six billion dollars in extra income per year, of which they have spent five billion a year. There's a gap there, and also the liberals have not been shy of deficit spending when they feel it's uh, required. So the question of whether or not tax measures of different kinds, reducing taxes or increasing taxes that the opposition parties are suggesting, whether the lack of those measures contributed to the failure to help people put more money back into their wallets, that is a political decision that the liberals have made. Uh, It's not really a question of revenue one way or the other.
4: Companies want to make money, right? So if you basically deter them from raising their prices more because the the extra money is going to go to the government anyway, the logic is that they're going to lower their prices. So it's not necessarily that that money that's being taxed is then going to go into the government's pocket, that's then going to turn it back to people, is that the very idea that the tax in place is, is a strong incentive to lower your prices.
0: I mean, either way, I think it kind of falls into the camp of we'll have to wait and see how businesses actually respond to that measure, right? I think that either way, mm-hmm. there is a mechanism by which the money ends up back in the consumer's pocket. It's just unclear whether it happens at the point of groceries being less expensive to begin with because of the incentive you mentioned, maybe, or whether it happens in sort of the slower, more roundabout way that Murad mentions. And then, of course, you're relying on the government to actually turn that money around to something that directly... Uh, you know, goes into people's pockets. So, This budget has kind of outlined a couple of possible scenarios of how Canada's economic future is going to shape up. So there's a baseline scenario where the government is trying to manifest a more optimistic take on the economy and how it's going to grow. And then a downside scenario where we're projecting a mild recession. So uh, I know we've mentioned like recessions are kind of an inevitable part of the business cycle or framed as such. So, Nick, do you feel like this is too optimistic of a take? Like, what do you see if you look into the crystal ball of Canada's economic future,
2: well, I think the downside scenario is pretty downside. It's pretty gloomy, of course, though. In most of their references to the fall economic statements uh, projections, they don't focus on the downside, right? Like they focus on the private sector economists that come together and they average out well, what all those economists say. So that's what they rely on. But I think what The downside scenarios like mere existence (laughs) alongside the private sector economists averaged forecast reveals is that it's even at good times, economic uncertainty. And the impact of all of the various programs and measures that are either proposed in the fall economic statement or promised in the budget next year, they all come into effect at different times and they all find their way to consumers or companies at different paces and different forms. So, you know, like there are immediate payments that are coming this fall that liberals love to talk about to beef up bank accounts during tough times for low income folks, mostly low income qualifying families. But some of the measures are waiting until tax time next year, or they won't even be tabled mm-hmm. until the next budget, which means they won't be in place until the following year at tax time, when families are finally able to kind of claim something that was first promised around now, you know, in the fall economic statement. And as they're doing all that, they we've t- talked a bit about the Bank of Canada and, and monetary policy and interest rates and how, they, how the impact of the fiscal policy on the government side, on the monetary policy decision-making over at the Bank of Canada, But most economists will point out pretty quickly that monetary policy itself takes like 12 to 18 months to actually see itself reflected in the economy in a really substantial way so (laughs) this is kind of a muddle of a response but i think that's kind of the point there are so many variables reacting to each other in real time and sometimes in a delayed fashion all we can say for sure probably (laughs) is that there will be a recession next year but the duration and depth of it is uncertain because there are so many different inputs here that have to play out, and some of them won't even hit the economy by the time the recession is over. If that happens in the first half of next year,
0: I think that that's a fair response uh, to ask any sort of direct question. That's like, "Hey, what's going to happen in the economy in 18 months? Like, what should I be doing with my investments?" It's just like asking for a response that's like not super direct. I mean, anyone who can actually successfully predict uh, what's going to happen with the economy next year, please let me know. I would love to hear.
2: Anyone right now who is thinking about buying a home and has like a reasonable shot at getting a down payment together. And that looks a little wild, like who would do that?
0: It feels like a really bad idea. I've been thinking about that a lot. I'm kind of uh, preying on the downfall of the housing market myself, to be totally honest. And <laughs> Maybe I can get something a little bit nicer than I would have expected. That's
4: the intergenerational thing, right? It's like millennial and Gen Z's being like, let the whole thing burn. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is how you can afford housing in Toronto is like, get a massive windfall and then still wait for the economy to crash. So last but not least, I want to just ask a rapid fire question to all of you. What is one thing that you think was missed in this budget that you would have liked to see? So your dream fall economic statement line item that was not there?
4: I mean, there's no way in hell it would have been in the fall economic statement. But what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks is just a lot of infighting between provinces and the federal government on healthcare transfers. And that is such a big file because of obviously everything we've gone through in the pandemic and how even right now hospitals are filled and there's the VRS, and then there's the flu, and then there's COVID. And it feels like our healthcare system is collapsing. And we're caught in Canada with a federal provincial argument that seems to be never ending, with both parties being so entrenched. And as that's going on, I feel like the people who are gaining some ground are the people who are pushing for privatization. So I feel like that's what's going on in the background. Uh, provincial federal government are arguing over who should pay the bill for healthcare reform and uh, private sector being like, hey, we should be be doing healthcare if you don't want to do it and you don't actually want to invest in it.
0: I agree that there was pretty much no hope of seeing that in the fall economic statement. Um, No. (laughs) But you know what? This is about making big asks. In my wildest dream. No, exactly. That's exactly the kind of response (laughs) I was looking for, I suppose.
2: I'm not really in the business of wishing for things from government, aside from transparency and accountability. I think, and I'll keep it short, because I may actually be walking all over Murad's lawn on this, um, but in this Falcon Iowa statement and in the last budget, there's always talk about innovation. They have a growth agency that they're going to launch before the end of the year. They've got like an investment agency that has a different name. And I'm honestly forgetting what it is because it's just various, it's like a word salad of buzzwords on innovation. They have the strategic innovation fund. They have so many different ways that people and businesses could supposedly access capital or or be incentivized to invest their own capital in this country to help us reach our net zero goals. Or you know, There's like a variety of broad themes. But I just wish there were one page in the fall economic statement where they would say, here's what all these things are. Here's how they're distinct from each other. And here's why it matters. And not in a way that just, again, repeats 7000 buzzwords about the competitive marketplace of ideas. and. You know, and like, here are all these incentives to, build. like, just, it just loses everybody. Because i come away from that fall economic statement thinking, I don't, I don't know what innovation is anymore. It just seems like gobbledygook to me.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that kind of language is why historically industrial policy and the sort of innovation language with the government has like lost me completely. And I just immediately start hearing like, you know, when you can hear the sound of your refrigerator? Like, just that's what it sounds like to me. It's just complete, like, white noise.
4: Isn't that what Pierre Poirier called uh, bureaucraties during his leadership campaign? He was going to do a bill against bureaucraties.
2: Yeah, like the Plain Language Act, which people torched at the time. But I think there's actually some merit to the concept. Like, Government should speak to people like they are people.
0: As a layperson, like, I feel as though it's not always the easiest to digest. Okay, Murad, what's your big ask for something that was not in the fall economic statement?
1: You know, that gobbledygook keeps me in stories, so I don't know that I objected. But actually, yeah, building on what Nick said, uh, so the Canadian Innovation Investment Agency was the thing that was we were supposed to get details on in this fall economic statement. Every FES and every budget, most reporters go into it with a list of things that we were promised there would be details on in the next one. So in this case, you know, the stuff in Budget 2022 that they promised that there would be details on in the fall economic statement this year. And there were two big ones for me, the Canada Growth Fund, which we did get details on, and the Investment uh, Innovation Investment Agency, which we did not. That we are told is coming in the coming weeks, uh, a phrase that in Ottawa can mean literally
0: anything. That could be quite literally any time. It doesn't tell you much. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
2: Honorable Speaker, I have a point of order.
0: Yeah, what's your point of order, Nick?
2: Because the uh, Liberals and Conservatives are just fighting each other now, as they always do, about who gets to control kind of the board in the House of Commons. So this week, Mark Holland, the government House leader, is tabling a motion that will give the government, as long as they have the NDP on their side, which they will, the ability to extend sittings into the night, like until midnight on a moment's notice. Conservatives, as much as they complain about not having enough time to debate anything, benefit from a limited number of hours in each sitting day to debate things they can just delay 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 it used to be that like evening sittings were in some golden era of politics members of parliament used to have dinner together and then uh, and come back for the what they call the late show and that wasn't the most family friendly arrangement sitting late into the night because that you know it's like you were just sitting at all hours my point of order is to conservatives and liberals to actually please just Whatever the genesis of this evening sittings gambit was, now that you have the chance, go have dinner together and just be nice to each other for a few hours in the day.
0: Not a point of order. You mentioned earlier, like, not wanting to make big wishes from government. Perhaps the most big wish we've heard on this podcast in a while of, like, just, like, let's break bread together and chat. We would have lost, like, that even, like, little bit of cynicism that we require here on the backbench. Thank you for that, Nick. <laughs> Maybe I can bring some. Oh, where we were missing cynicism. Do you have a point of order, mean <laughs>
4: <laughs> Yes, I do have a point of order, honorable speaker. I've been watching snippets of the inquiry into the use of the Emergency Act in Ottawa. And, you know, as someone who has organized quite a few protests over the years, and I've seen police presence there, especially as a bunch of Black organizers, the kind of messages that we've been hearing from convoy organizers, the kind of communication between police officers and convoy organizers has been, I won't use the word surprising, but still out of this world, the way that people are just so casually passing information to one another and be like, yeah, police is my buddy. It's like, it's a thing that tells me more than anything I've heard I think recently in this country how we are living in completely different galaxies like those folks are from a different galaxy my point of order is what the fuck I hope that a lot of people who are watching this or even following this will look at this and like if you weren't a, cr- a critic of police before I hope this moment if not anything else it can be a moment where you're like huh some people in this country are not treated the same way by police and others. Like that's a fact that you should have gotten in, in like 2020 or in 2015 or like way before that. But like, I feel like now should be the time when you look at this, when you see the flip side of it and you put the realities of indigenous peoples and black peoples side by side, but what we've been hearing from, from Ottawa during that emergency act inquiry and, and really have that WTF moment for yourself. I feel like if you do that, if we all do that, we're going to come out of this inquiry where we're asking much better questions in terms of accountability for our institutions moving forward. That's my point of order.
0: Yeah, not a point of order, but I think a, a very good <laughs> a very good note. It's been very interesting hearing testimony and and things unfold with this uh, inquiry and like seeing that basically all of the sort of worst fears that people had about the way that the convoy was being organized and the way that they were being treated by police. And all of these speculations are basically being confirmed for the most part one by one.
1: Honorable Speaker, I have a point of order.
0: I'm so glad to hear it. What is it?
1: Some of our listeners may not have noticed, but there's a Green Party leadership race going on. Uh, In fact, voting in that leadership race uh, opened on Saturday and closes next Saturday. I just want to remind people that it's happening, I suppose, because The Greens do have two MPs in Parliament currently, although they technically sit as independents because they do not have official party status. What exactly are they going to be offering other than the same face uh, and another face standing beside her? This is sort of a moment where that question should be asked because this is a going concern of a party for some time uh, at least uh, and uh, one that uh, maybe we should be paying more attention to.
0: It's not a point of order, but it is a very good reminder.
1: Using the notwithstanding clause to suspend workers' rights um, is wrong.
3: Will the Premier change tack today, join the Prime Minister, his good friend, and condemn the use of the notwithstanding clause?
1: As a gesture of good faith, Our government is willing to rescind the legislation, we're willing to rescind Section 33, but only if QP agrees to show a similar gesture of good faith by stopping their strike.
0: We've had, once again, a narrow miss with the notwithstanding clause. Ontario Premier Doug Ford tried using the notwithstanding clause for the second or third time, depending on how we're counting attempted uses of the notwithstanding clause. This most recent attempt came about in response to recent calls to action from Ontario's largest union, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, also known as CUPE. Ford backed down and withdrew the legislation that he had proposed invoking the notwithstanding clause after strikes from QP. The legislation would have essentially locked QP into a contract with no opportunity for negotiation for a period of many more years than they should have had to deal with. This clause is also known as Section 33 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Essentially what it does is gives provinces in Canada the power to override certain portions of the charter for five-year terms when they pass legislation. So you may wonder, doesn't this impede, like, all of our basic rights? Uh, And the answer is it can impede some of them, but not all of them. The clause can only override certain sections of the Charter which deal with fundamental freedoms, legal rights, and equality rights, but the clause cannot be used to override democratic rights. The Notwithstanding Clause was first put in place in 1982, and it was added as a compromise for provinces who were worried about their powers being usurped by the federal government. It was supposed to be used as a last resort sort of tool— but the taboo on using the notwithstanding clause has been broken in recent years, and Premier Ford's recent use of the clause is sparking public debate. Here's what the Minister of Justice, David Lametti considers Ontario's use of the notwithstanding clause to be in this recent dispute. The
3: preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause is very serious and, and even anti-democratic. If it's used at the beginning, it, it, guts, de- it guts Canadian democracy it right? and means the right? charter doesn't exist.
0: The notwithstanding clause has definitely become popular in recent years. It's been used or attempted to be used in New Brunswick, Saskatchewan and Quebec in addition to Ontario. Although the clause was intended to be used in just the most unusual of circumstances, it's now at risk of becoming a commonplace tool for Canadian governments. It seems like it's going to continue to be invoked, and it could override Canadians' rights in some cases in the name of majority preferences or just the government hating public employees. How should we feel about the notwithstanding clause? Let's ask some people who know a little bit more about it than I do. So, first question, Nick. The notwithstanding clause is hashtag trending. The use is becoming quite common compared to how it's historically been used. How worried should we be about the trend that we're seeing? Is it something that we can even really call a trend?
2: I do think that this particular episode is just the latest reminder in 150 plus years since the British North America Act was (laughs) enshrined in law, that provinces and the federal government have always, always, always had tension. Obviously, people's rights are at stake in this particular showdown, but the larger fight here... Uh, as it always has been is a provincial government saying we have the ability to assert ourselves whether it's against the federal government's wishes or the Supreme Court's wishes that were you know handed down in a ruling at some point in the in the past we have the right and Doug Ford is a brash guy and he doesn't act softly. <laughs> Uh, or subtly. And so he pulls out the big stick. It's just going to be his style, I think, until he leaves office. He won't be the last premier to do it. He is not the first premier uh, to, to get in this kind of fight uh, with whoever's on the other side of the notwithstanding clause. But I don't know if you can call it a trend.
0: What is the difference between these sorts of different scenarios that I've described, whether it's preemptively using the clause, threatening to use the clause, actually using it? Why might a government take each of these different approaches, and does it matter, you know, to to draw those fine distinctions between them?
1: There's a sort of meta-conversation here, which is, there's a legal invocation of the notwithstanding clause. There's including it in legislation that you're passing. There is the fighting of the legal cases in court. But... This cannot be divorced from the political reality of its use as a political tool, right? It is a signifier or an indicator. Including it in this legislation is Doug Ford's government's way of saying, do not try to bog us down in court over this. It's not so much uh, speak softly and carry a big stick as it is brandish the big stick uh, when you're making the ask in the first place in order to prevent Uh, the next thing, in order to prevent you from having to speak softly. That is something that really feeds into all of this. You know, As I say, from a legal and a structural perspective, undoubtedly it matters when they do it in the process. It affects how quickly the case moves, it affects your sort of layers of appeals, it affects all of those things. But Politically, if the idea is to send a message that this is a thing that's happening now, get with the program, then threatening it versus putting it in legislation, you know, putting in legislation obviously sort of takes it a step further. But the effect is still the same, which is to signal this is how things are now. There's this debate about when it should be used. There's a sort of variation of Chekhov's gun here, right? Why put the gun on the wall in the story if you don't intend to use it? You have to be seen Politically, from that perspective, you both have to be seen to be willing to do something and then willing to follow through when push comes to shove. Otherwise, there's no point in brandishing it in the first place.
0: Like the Chekhov's gun reference is not something I was expecting to hear, but I think it's accurate, right? Like, you know, obviously the notwithstanding clause was included in the charter for a reason. The reason is that presumably provinces at the time thought there was some circumstances under which they might want to use it. And then I think it's how it's being used that's perhaps unexpected, right? Since the original intent, I think, was very much for it to be used in response to legislation being struck down by a court, rather than putting it into legislation before that legislation even gets passed a first time around to defend against a potential court challenge. The notwithstanding clause, if used uh, quote unquote correctly, can work for periods of five years. So does this mean that legislation that uses it gets scrapped after five years? Does it get invoked again? How does this work in the context of something like Bill 101 in Quebec?
4: Before talking about the 101, I'm going to do a parenthesis that I think is worth having about the Charter of Human Rights and Freedom Canada itself. And I think when you talk about you know Bill 101 or some history of linguistic debates we've had in Canada, it's because of that. There's a very strong insistence in our liberal framework with a small L, but also with a Bill L of the Charter of Human Rights and Freedom that's very much on individual rights and freedom. And for example, a language needs a community to live. Right? You cannot just only have freedom to speak wherever and expect minority languages to thrive in that, there also needs to be collective choices to speak a language together for a language to actually thrive and be passed on generation to to generation. And that's an approach to right to cultural transmission of language that's not very well thought of in our present legal system. So that's, I guess, one of the tensions that was there ever since the the adoption of Bill 101 language laws in Quebec is that it limits freedom of certain individual to choose to their children, for, for example, in whatever language, but there is still a rights approach to things which is people who are Francophone in Canada and in Quebec specifically have also a right to pass on their language and to, and to live and work in their language, right? So that's the tension that we've been having. And so sometimes, to be able to make that point across and to adopt certain measures that would, I think, a lot of people in Quebec would see as a way to protect collective rights, you need to put limitations on individual rights. And so that's the ways in which we've been having a lot of debates over the years. For example, on Bill on Bill One Hundred One, and uh, some of it was struck down in the '80s after the Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms of Canada was the Constitution, essentially, was was adopted, and some sections of it were re-adopted afterwards by Premier Quebec for example, the part about being able to have signs in English language was struck down by the courts. And then it was put back eventually with the use of the notwithstanding clause. And it was also, you know, now you can write in English, but have that smaller than the French language, I guess is the combination that people found. So I think there's legitimate ways in which you know, because the chart of human rights and freedom is old in sense of like only acknowledging a certain generation of human rights. There's ways in which the rights in which it's intention tension with. Sometimes you need to kind of like go around the system a little bit to make sure that you have a result that's actually fair for for goals that you want to have put forward as a society. And I think that debate is the debate we're not having because. A lot of the time when we talk about that clause and when we talk about the chart of human rights and freedom, it's because it's approached by people who don't want to do more than what the chart is doing. Is people that want to do less, right, in terms of protection of human rights. And that's where I think this whole debate is coming from. So that was a long parenthesis, but I think it's, it's really important to have it because when you then it puts everything else into perspective and what you have now is not only is that the chart is being criticized by people who want less human rights and not more, uh, but it's also criticized The notwithstanding clause is used preemptively. So before that, you know, you adopted whatever bill you wanted, and then it would get challenged in court. The court would have essentially a chance to make a judgment on your act on your bill, and then eventually you would make the decision. Do you still want to have that? part of your bill in place, that article in place, and then you would put the article back in place and have, you know, to put forward a political argument for why it was important for you to put that article in place in spite of the fact that courts were warning you about its impact on individual human rights. That's how it used to work. That's how it worked for Bill 101 back in the days. That's not how people are using it anymore. Quebec government is just essentially using preemptively. Uh, and that's what the Ontario government was doing in as well, and so that's making it super hard for people to actually go to courts and make their arguments that whatever bills is having an impact on their rights and is a violation of their human rights. And so right now, for example, there's a challenge on Bill 21 that's put in place, and it's like trying to fight a bill while being handcuffed. Essentially, is is what's going on because of how few legal arguments lawyers that are actually challenging the bill can actually make now that the the, the clause has been used preemptively is is a situation that we're in. And for me, that's the part that's incredibly worrisome.
0: So to kind of go back to this issue of QP, right? We saw that there was a lot of backlash um, from Doug Ford's attempt to use the notwithstanding clause during the QP education workers strike in Ontario. And we also saw the prime minister heartily disagree with the use of the notwithstanding clause in that context specifically. So there is something of a backdoor method to fight against the use of the clause, which is the idea of like the disallowance power that the federal government could in theory invoke. And that would get us to that point of, I guess, I don't know, federal supremacy, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So... The disallowance clause, first of all, is this actually useful as a sort of oversight? You know, how would it play out if it were ever going to be used? Will it ever be used? Like, is that something a federal government would ever want to do? Or would the political cost of doing that just be too high?
2: It's an interesting question, because the number of people who were of adult age consuming news the last time the disallowance law was invoked is (laughs) shrinking. You know, it was 1943. I don't know that there's any sense of the public appetite for the federal government taking that kind of action there's no doubt it's legitimate you know it's been in the constitution since the beginning but it's only ever referred to by you know like political scientists and the occasional columnist as the the politically unusable disallowance power because it just hasn't been used in almost 80 years but it was used dozens of times in the 19th century (laughs) you know it's like there's precedent um, but it's uh, I mean, for people like us, it'd be super fascinating because it would just be chaos. No premier would know how to respond to that, except probably with, in the most aggressive terms possible, because back when they used to fight about it in the 19th century, it was pretty aggressive. <laughs> Is it on the table? I mean, my guess would be it's not really.
4: I guess I'm just wondering, would it trigger stronger reactions in Quebec or in Alberta? Is <laughs> where I am.
0: And that's a new question, I guess, that wouldn't have been active in 1943.
4: Yeah, I guess it's a new political reality.
1: In Justin Trudeau's Ottawa, the disallowance clause, we don't really even acknowledge that it's on the wall, much less that they might uh, they might use it. Uh, you know, he was asked about this. Of course, he was asked about this. The prime minister was asked about this in the week of the strike, and he said. Not to quote him exactly, but roughly, effectively, if Doug Ford wants to avoid the kinds of scenes he's seeing at Queen's Park or these strikes, then he should sort of reconsider his use of the notwithstanding clause, which is basically the Prime Minister saying, if you do this, people will strike, which is a good observation. Good for him. He saw what was happening in in Toronto. He read the news, but he wasn't saying, you know, we will do anything about it. Uh, And quite frequently, we see this on Matters involving the provinces, there is some high uh, 30,000 foot ideal expressed. The right to collective action is important. We stand in support of workers' rights. What are you going to do about that? Well, here's what's happening. Okay, but what are you going to do about that? No, no here's what's happening. What are you going to do about that? Here are our principles. So, you know, trying to get the federal government to wave their own stick and say, if you uh, continue to proceed down this path, we will invoke disallowance. I would not hold my breath on that uh, if I were the striking workers of QP or whatever the next group is that comes up in these situations. I mean, Bill 21, going back to that again, the amount of time for it, it took for the federal government to make clear what their position would be on court challenges, it took a while. It took several rounds of questioning. If it is true that we are in an environment of the notwithstanding clause rearing its head, More and more often, I think you can expect not much uh, on the federal side in terms of some kind of coordinated statement about how they are responding to this and or
0: disallowance. And on that note, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when the Emergencies Act inquiry will be wrapping up, and I'm sure we will have a lot to say about it. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at and we're also on Twitter at Backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. Murad, where can people find you?
1: I write at thelogic.co, and I'm on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M.
0: M.D., where can people find you? I host The Tour on
4: Canada Land. And I write for the Devoir and the Montreal Gazette. And I'm still on Twitter for now, at Emilie underscore NI.
0: And last but not least, Nick, where can people find you?
2: I write the Ottawa Playbook at Politico. So you can find that at politico.com slash Ottawa Playbook. I'm also on Twitter. Never tweet, but I'm on Twitter at Taylor TaylorBasey.
0: I am currently on vacation in New York, which is why my audio maybe sounded a bit different today. One interesting fact about New York and the grid is that the reason that Broadway doesn't follow exactly the grid system in Manhattan is because it actually follows an indigenous route that was used for a long time before the Dutch and then later the British colonized New York. It's crowdfunding month here at Candleland, and if you've already gone ahead and supported our work, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. If you haven't done so yet, we really hope you'll consider it. Not only will you be supporting independent journalism and all the work we do here, we also have a ton of new benefits and perks for you, including discounts on exclusive merch in our store, a new monthly supporter email, bonus episodes, sneak peeks, and invitations to live shows and events. We love that this show gets people talking. We get to have critical and fun conversations and debates. We don't want it to be a one way street. We want to come to you so that you can take part in the conversation. In 2023, we hope to take this show on the road across the country. Until then, on December 14th, we'll be hosting our first live show in Toronto, famously not the center of the universe, but where I happen to live, at the Hot Dog Cinema. Join me and a panel of special guests for an evening of political shit-talking. We're going to look back on a year of highlights and lowlights, from the Freedom Convoy to Just Inflation to the Liberal NDP woke coalition, not to mention our new opposition leader and apparently also a new Green Party leader. Maybe it'll be the old Green Party leader. There's so much ground for us to cover at this event. Bring your most absurd questions for an evening of serious political discourse. Tickets are $15 but are free for Candleland supporters. It's going to be a fun night, and we are so excited to see you there. To get your tickets, go to hotdocs.ca. Supporters, you can check your email for info on how to get yours for free. This episode was produced by Aviva Lessard, with additional production by Noor Azrieh and Tristan Capacchione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more